playing a basketball game in here. <laughs> wow, what an exciting night this is at the Masters University. Uh, an evening full of praise to God. Uh, an evening of joyful Christian fellowship. Opportunity for us to come together to give uh, the glory to our God. If you've not been a part of our conference that began two days ago, our focus is upon the five solas of the Reformation. And the word sola is Latin for alone. And there were five distinguishing truths that emerged out of the Reformation of the 16th century. And the reason we're drawing attention to these solas in this conference is because this marks the beginning of 2017, which is the five year, 500 year anniversary of the launch of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, when Martin Luther on October 31st, 1517, nailed the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg door, and he took his stand to begin to pursue the recovery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these five solas are really the anchor points for this great movement that has been the greatest movement on planet earth since the birth of the church in the first century. Think of it this way as, as a temple. The very foundation is sola scriptura. Everything in a temple rests upon the foundation. If the foundation is strong, everything is held up. And there is only one foundation for any true movement of God, and it is the inerrant, the inspired, and the infallible Word of the living God. That was sola scriptura, Scripture alone. And the Roman Catholic Church said, yes, we acknowledge the Bible, but it was Scripture and church tradition, Scripture and the Pope, Scripture and ecclesiastical councils. And the Reformers said, no, it is Scripture alone. And built upon this foundation of Scripture alone is what the Bible brings crystal clear testimony concerning the three pillars of the gospel. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. And there you have the most succinct statement of the one true saving gospel of Jesus Christ that could ever be stated. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Rome said, no, salvation is in these things and the Virgin Mary, and good works, and church membership, and indulgences, and relics, and treasury of merit, and the purchase of indulgence, and, 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 all the way down to a priest at the, at the bedside of someone who is dying, and last rites. And the Reformers said of the 16th century, no, it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we have been carving these truths out of the pages of Scripture over these last days. And when these three pillars are in place, resting upon the sure foundation of the written Word of God, it points upward and the roof line points up to God, to the glory of God alone. That's what the Reformation was all about. And it became the most extraordinary movement in the history of the Christian church since the birth of the church 
in the first century. Tonight, as we put a bow around this entire conference, tonight as we bring to conclusion our study of these solas, I've been asked to address the doctrine-driven lives of John Calvin and John Knox. The Reformation was really a three-generation movement, beginning with Martin Luther, and then John Calvin, and then John Knox, and how the truths of these five solas so dramatically impacted their lives. And the aim is to show how we are to apply and live these very truths. Truth is always meant to change our lives. Truth is never intended to be just interesting. Truth is dynamic. Truth is powerful. Truth has the power to save. Truth has the power to sanctify. Truth is never passive in a believer's life. The truth always radically transforms our lives. The truth changes everything. Truth gets a hold of our lives and never leaves us where it found us. And so tonight, I want us to consider how the truth so impacted the life of John Calvin and how the truth so impacted the life of John Knox. And the reason I want to set these before you is because I want the truth to impact your life. I want the truth to conform you into the image of Christ. I want the truth to launch a new reformation in this century. I want the truth to shake the gates of hell. I want the truth to reach the corners of the earth and have dramatic impact. So I want us to look at Calvin, and I want us to look at John Knox, two seminal figures arguably the most influential individual over the last 500 years in all of Western civilization is John Knox. It has been well said to study history without your eye on John Calvin is to read history with one eye closed. John Calvin is arguably the founding father of this nation, for it was the very ideals that Calvin carved out of the Word of God in 16th century Geneva that shaped the very foundation of our country with a Christian worldview, with work ethic, with education, in our political system, across the board. It was the philosophy and ideology and doctrine of John Calvin that gave birth to the uniqueness of the United States of America. To, have, to fail to have an understanding of how the truth affected John Calvin would be to study history in a dark room and not to see the leading influence. And then John Knox, the trumpeter of Scotland, the founder of the church in Scotland, And the influence that has come to this country from that little island is unprecedented. such a small little area. But it was John Knox who lit the fuse in Scotland and set off a chain reaction that had its effect all the way to this country. 
So I want us to consider these two men under three headings. I want us to consider how these five solas led to their conversions. I want us to consider, second, how these five solas drove their ministries. And then finally, how these five solas enabled them to come to the doorsteps of death at the end of their life and to die confidently in the Lord and graduate to glory. So I want us to note first, the five solas led to their conversions. Both John Calvin and John Knox were born in the spiritual darkness of the Catholic Church. And it was when they came to the light of the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ through these solas that their lives were regenerated and they were converted to faith in Jesus Christ. Let's begin with John Calvin. John Calvin was born in 1509 in Noyon, France, which is about 60 miles northeast of Paris. John Calvin was born in the Catholic Church. He was baptized in the Catholic Church. He was confirmed in the Catholic Church. He was educated in the Catholic Church, and his father worked for the Catholic Church. His father was a financial administrator for the Catholic Church there in Noyon, and he, John Calvin's father raised him to one day be a priest in the Catholic Church. In fact, when John Calvin was 11 years old, he began to receive a salary from the Roman Catholic Church as a down payment for one day he would go into the Catholic Church as a priest and serve there. At age 14, Calvin entered the most prestigious university in all of Europe, none other than the famous elite University of Paris, and there, at age 14, he began to study in order to become a priest in that foul religious system of Roman Catholicism filled with its corruption of the gospel, filled with its religious superstitions, filled with its assault against the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is where John Calvin grew up. And that is where John Calvin was raised, and that is where John Calvin attended school, and he graduated from the University of Paris at age 17. His father then uh, attempted to uh, secure two more appointments in the Catholic Church for his young son John to, to raise his salary before even ever entering the priesthood, and it led to a conflict between Calvin's father and the, the higher-ups in the, in the uh, hierarchy of the Catholic Church and Calvin's father became so disenchanted with the Catholic Church that he redirected his son away from the priesthood to the study of law because he understood that a lawyer would make more money than even a priest. And in 1528, John Calvin entered the University of Orleans to study law, and it was immediately recognized. He had one of the most brilliant minds that they had ever seen. He, he was penetrating in his analysis uh, and study of case law. 
he was so convincing in arguing any case from either side that his nickname within the school was the accusative case. In 1531, Calvin's father died. And young John Calvin, 21 years of age, was freed from his father's dominant influence and sought to study his true love, which was classical literature. He chose to, con to complete his law degree. In 1532, he graduated and then entered the University of Bordeaux to pursue yet another degree in classical literature. And it was while he was studying in school that John Calvin first came in direct contact with the truths of the Reformation. The works of Martin Luther were making their way to the various universities of this day. There were students at Cambridge who were, who were meeting together and studying the works of Luther, and it was happening at the University of Paris, and it was happening in multiple places. And what we need to understand is that the Reformation at the launch was essentially a college movement. Young men in their early 20s, their minds being lit up with the truth of these solas, their hearts being deepened and being personally converted to faith in Jesus Christ. And this is exactly what happened to John Calvin. And it was these truths of the five solas, though they were not defined as five solas, nevertheless these truths were there that brought John Calvin to saving faith in Jesus Christ. He gives us his testimony in only one place. Calvin would never talk about himself. You can read all of his sermons and you'll never learn anything about John Calvin. For he was always turning the attention to God and to Christ. But as he wrote his commentary to the book of Psalms, he gave us a paragraph of his testimony of saving faith in Jesus Christ. And this is what Calvin wrote. To this pursuit of the study of law, I endeavored faithfully to apply myself in obedience to the will of my Father, but God. By the secret guidance of His providence, at length gave a different direction to my course. At, at first, since I was too obstinately devoted to the superstitions of popery, to be easily extracted from so profound an abyss of mire. God, by a sudden conversion, subdued and brought my mind to a teachable frame, which was more hardened in such matters than might have been expected from one at an early period of life like mine. He is saying he was so deeply entrenched as a young man in his early 20s, in, in the lives of Roman Catholicism, that only God could have rescued him out of this. Having thus received some taste and knowledge of true godliness, Calvin writes, I was immediately inflamed with so intense a desire to make progress therein, 
that although I did not altogether leave off all other studies, I yet pursued them with less ardor, close quote. Out of that testimony, there are five things that I want to draw to your attention about a true conversion, a genuine conversion. Number one, Calvin says that it was a radical conversion that he experienced. Uh, Previous to his conversion, Calvin had been prepared by his father to be a Catholic priest. He was deeply entrenched in Roman Catholicism. His mother took him on pilgrims to to shrines in order to worship saints and, and to come before altars and to see relics and to pray to saints. And for Calvin to be converted, it was a dramatic, radical, 180-degree direction, change of life. Second, it was a divine conversion. He was so sunken down into Catholicism that only God could have rescued him. And as Calvin gives his testimony, he attributed his conversion exclusively to God alone. He mentions no human instrument, though it was his Greek teacher who was teaching him New Testament Greek, who was the one who was teaching him the solas of the Reformation. Yet Calvin understood that it was only God who could have invaded his life, and it was only God who could have apprehended him as he was now laid hold of. And then third, he says it was a sudden conversion. Calvin said his conversion brought an immediate change in his life, an unexpected change in his life. He saw himself like Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus Road, hell-bound with letters in hand on the Damascus Road, going to arrest the Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem. When that light appeared and knocked Saul of Tarsus off the high, his high horse, and he looked up and immediately, suddenly said, Lord, what would you have me to do? That was the way it was with John Calvin. And it was the absolute sovereignty of God that invaded and intervened in his life and converted him. Fourth, it was a conquering conversion. God overcame his resistance to the truth of the gospel. God conquered his proud heart in that moment and subdued him and gave him a teachable spirit. And then fifth, it was transforming. He suddenly lost all interest in the things of this world. He lost interest in the study of law. He became absorbed in the pursuit of spiritual matters pertaining to God's Word, and it would be only a little more than two years after this he would write the Institutes of the Christian Religion. He, he was aflame for God through this conversion. And before I go any further, I want to ask you, have you been converted by the Lord? Have, has He pursued you and laid hold of you like he did John Calvin? And has he rescued you out of dead religion and brought you into a saving relationship with his son, Jesus Christ? 
You can't even turn your own heart around because it is so wicked and it is so foul and it is so hardened. It is a work of grace that only God himself can perform in your life. And so I want to ask you this question. Have you been converted? Are you born again? Have you been birthed from above? This was the conversion of John Calvin. And it was powerful, and at age 24, he enters in to a personal knowledge of Jesus Christ, having grown up in the church, having been surrounded by the church, having been groomed and prepared for the Catholic Church, he now is a true believer in Jesus Christ. This leads now to John Knox. And the life of John Knox was equally changed, for John Knox also grew up in the Catholic Church. John Knox was also baptized and confirmed and raised in the Catholic Church. John Knox was born five years after John Calvin. He was born three years before Luther nailed his 95 Theses. John Knox was born in 1514, and he was born in Scotland in East Lothian, about 15 miles east of Edinburgh. Knox, like Calvin, was born in the Catholic Church, as I said, surrounded by all of the religious superstition of Catholicism. That's all that is my new, was the darkness of dead, empty, foul religion. In 1529, he entered the University of St. Andrews, which was the oldest and the finest university in Scotland. He graduated from St. Andrews University and was ordained a priest in the Catholic Church. He was like held captive by chains of darkness and chains of unbelief within the Roman Catholic Church. And he was totally entrenched in the false gospel and in the false dogma of Rome. Upon becoming ordained as a Catholic priest, there was not a a parish or a church that was available for him. And because of the brilliance of his mind, he was appointed a papal notary, much like Calvin's father. During this time in Scotland, the Catholic Church owned more than half of the land mass of the nation of Scotland. And the amount of money that was pouring into the Catholic Church was 18 times larger than the Scottish crown. And so to be a a papal notary to oversee the vast real estate holdings of the Catholic Church and to oversee the, the massive money and wealth of the Catholic Church was a very substantial position for John Knox to have. And so consequently, this this position elevated him to become something like a legal officer and financial officer in the Catholic Church. The exact time of his conversion is not known for sure, but we do know by 1543, almost the age of 30, that he had come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. There was a a Catholic ex-friar 
who had been converted through the teachings of the Reformers on the European continent. His name was Thomas uh, Gillenay, and it was Gillenay who first introduced the gospel, the evangelical gospel, to John Knox. And John Knox was converted. And on his deathbed, Knox would say of his conversion that he first cast his anchor in John 17. The high theological truths, the the doctrines of grace contained in John 17 captured the heart of John Knox and brought him into a saving knowledge of Christ and out of the polluted system of Rome and out of the contamination of the gospel of Rome And John Knox was powerfully and dramatically converted, and he never looked back. And John Knox would write later, It pleased God to call me from the puddle of papistry. In other words, he saw it as a foul sewer, a, a, a muddled, dirty religious system that demeaned and degraded the purity of the one saving gospel of Jesus Christ. And John Knox was saved and converted under the truths of the solas. These two conversions, one by John Calvin, the other by John Knox, is exactly what must take place in your life if it has not yet already happened. Uh, You may have been brought up in the church like Knox and Calvin. Uh, You may have been brought up in a religious family like Calvin and Knox. You may have attended a, a, a Christian school, a religious school like Calvin and Knox. And you may read theology and about the Christian religion like Calvin and Knox and yet be unconverted like Calvin and Knox. And it may just be that yet the gospel needs to come into your heart and into your life and for you to be dramatically saved by the power of grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. So I want to ask you, have you been converted to faith in Jesus Christ? Have you been rescued and delivered out of an empty religion and brought into the reality of a personal knowledge of Jesus Christ? That's where the doctrine-driven lives of Calvin and Knox begin. It begins with their own dramatic conversion. But second, I want to talk about the five solas how they defined their ministries. Because both Calvin and Knox found their ministries marked by the five solas that we have been preaching about. And first I want to begin with John Calvin. John Calvin was the embodiment of these five solas. Let's begin with sola scriptura, scripture alone. J.H. Merrill Dubonnet, the great historian of the Reformation, notes, in Calvin's view, everything that had not for its foundation the Word of God was futile and boast, 
And the man who did not lean on Scripture ought to be deprived of his title of honor. In other words, if a man will not preach the Word of God, he needs to step down and pursue another vocation because it is the one who holds the office of preacher is charged to preach the Word of God. Philip Schaff writes in History of the Christian Church, in volume 8, he writes, Calvin had the profoundest reverence for the Scriptures as containing the Word of the living God and as the only infallible and sufficient rule of faith and duty. You see, Calvin believed that the Bible is the voice of God, that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. T.H.L. Parker, who was arguably the greatest authority on the preaching of Calvin, asserts, For Calvin, the message of Scripture is sovereign, sovereign over the congregation and sovereign over the preacher. Calvin understood that the highest arbitrator in the church is the Word of God, and everything and everyone yields to the higher authority of the Word of God. The preacher is under the authority of the Word of God. The elders are under the authority of the Word of God. The entire life of the church and the congregation is in submission under the authority of the Word of God. And Hughes Oliphant Old, who just recently went to be with the Lord, the greatest authority on the history of preaching that we have had in this generation, writes, Calvin's sermons reveal a high sense of the authority of Scripture. The preacher himself, referring to Calvin, believed that he was preaching the very Word of God. Listen to what Calvin said about sola scriptura. The minister's whole task is limited to the ministry of God's Word. In other words, the preacher has nothing to say apart from the Word of God. Calvin went on to say, when we enter the pulpit, it is not so that we may bring our own dreams and fancies with us. Calvin said, as soon as men depart, even in the smallest degree from God's Word, they cannot preach anything but falsehoods, vanities, impostures, errors, and deceits. Just to err in the slightest from the Word of God and to depart from it is to depart from the light and to enter into darkness. Calvin said a rule is prescribed to all God's servants that they bring not their own inventions into the pulpit but simply deliver us from hand to hand what they have received from God. And finally, Calvin said, We owe to the Scripture the same reverence which we owe to God because it has proceeded from Him alone. John Calvin was the poster boy for sola scriptura. He stood immovable upon the inspiration, the inerrancy, the authority, the sufficiency, and the immutability of the Word of God. James Montgomery Boyce, reflecting upon this ministry of John Calvin, writes, Calvin had no weapon but the Bible. Calvin preached from the Bible every day. And under the power of that preaching, the city began to be transformed and it would be John Knox who came to Geneva and sat under the preaching of Calvin. Knox would say that Geneva had become the most perfect school of Christ since the apostles. 
Calvin preached some 4,000 expository sermons every Sunday morning, every Sunday afternoon from the New Testament and from Psalms, and he preached every morning of the week at 6 a.m., Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, every other week to a packed house. He preached verse by verse through books in the Bible because he believed in sola scriptura. He preached through Genesis, 123 sermons. Deuteronomy, 200 consecutive expositions. Judges, a short series. 1 Samuel, 107 consecutive expositions. 2 Samuel, 87. 1 Kings, a various number. Job, 159 consecutive verse-by-verse expositions. Individual Psalms, 72. We know there were more, but we, there was a paper shortage in Geneva, and many of his sermons were sold, and we don't know the number of those Psalms from those that were sold. Psalm 119, 22 sermons. Isaiah, 353 consecutive verse-by-verse expositions through the book of Isaiah. Jeremiah, 91 sermons, Lamentations, 25, Ezekiel, 175, Daniel, 47, Hosea, 65, Joel, 17, Amos, 43, Obadiah, 5, Jonah, 6, Micah, 28, Nahum, we don't have the number, Zephaniah, 17. He died while he was preaching uh, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, joining them together. Acts, 189 sermons. 1 Corinthians, 110. 2 Corinthians, 66. Galatians, 43. Ephesians, 48. 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 46. 1 Timothy, 55. 2 Timothy, 31. Titus, 17. He also wrote a commentary on three-quarters of the Bible handling each verse in that book. It comprises 45 volumes of 400 pages each as he opens up the Word of God. In the Institutes of the Christian Religion, there are over 3,000 Scripture references. This was John Calvin's commitment to sola scriptura. He must preach the Word. He must teach the Word, he must defend the Word, he must thunder the Word, he must do all according to the Word of God. Calvin said, let the pastors boldly declare all things by the Word of God, of which they are constituted administrators. Let them constrain all the power, glory, and excellence of the world to give place to and obey the divine majesty of this Word. Let them enjoin everyone by the word, from the highest to the lowest. Let them edify the body of Christ. Let them devastate Satan's reign. Let them pastor the sheep, kill the wolves, instruct and exhort the rebellious. Let them bind, let them loose, let them thunder, let them light, uh, lightning. But let all be done according to the word of God. Close quote. This is the strict adherence that John Calvin had to the Bible, to the Word of the living God. This naturally leads to sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christos, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. 
The Reformation was simply a recovery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is these next three solas that form the heart of the Reformation and the heart of the gospel, and Calvin was strictly devoted to them, and these three come together to to form and forge the doctrine of justification by faith. Calvin regarded the doctrine of justification by faith alone the primary article of the Christian religion. He considers it, quote, the main hinge on which religion turns. Calvin referred to this doctrine as the principal article of the whole doctrine of salvation and the foundation of all religion, close quote. Calvin said, the man is said to be justified by faith who without reference to the righteousness of works grasps by faith the righteousness of Jesus Christ. When clothed with it, he appears before God's face, not as a sinner, but as a righteous man. Calvin believed that if you have Christ, you have his righteousness. If you commit your life to Jesus Christ, you have everything that belongs to Christ. And his grace, his mercy, and his righteousness comes to the sinner who believes on Jesus Christ. He writes, as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from Him, all that He has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us. Therefore, to share with us what He has received from the Father, He had to become ours and dwell within us. And he goes on to say that we must believe in Christ and enter into a relationship with Christ in order to have what only Christ can give to us. He said we are justified in God's sight solely through the righteousness of Christ. In other words, a man is righteous not in himself, but because Christ's righteousness is made over to him by imputation. We observe here that Paul situates our righteousness not in ourselves, but in Christ. And that righteousness is ours for no other reason than that we share in Christ. So again, if you have Christ, you have everything. If you don't have Christ, you don't have a thing. He that has the Son has life, and he that does not have the Son does not have life, but the wrath of God abides on him. That was the driving focus of Calvin's ministry. And as he would come to the end of his sermons, he would so often issue a a gospel appeal and call those in his congregation who were flooding into Geneva from France and from England and from various parts of Europe, calling them to faith in Jesus Christ. Listen to this gospel appeal by John Calvin from his sermon on Galatians 2, 15 and 16. We are all under condemnation every time we compare ourselves with God. We need to have such a fear that we cannot find rest until the Lord Jesus Christ has saved us. See, therefore, how good it is for us to be heavy laden. That is to say, to hate our sins 
and to be such anguish over them that we feel surrounded by the pains of death so that we seek Christ in order that He might ease us of our burdens. We must, however, seek Him in the knowledge that we cannot obtain salvation, full or in part, unless it is granted to us as a gift. That is sola gratia. Paul is not saying that we may find something of what we lack in Jesus Christ, and we supply the rest by ourselves. Paul says we cannot be counted righteous through our own merits or works, but only through faith in Christ. They're sola fide. Let us therefore understand that there is no salvation whatsoever outside of Jesus Christ. For He is the beginning and the end of faith, and He is all in all. Let us continue in humility, knowing that we can only bring condemnation upon ourselves. Therefore, we need to find all that pertains to salvation in the pure and free mercy of God. We must be able to say that we are saved through faith. God the Father has appointed His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that He might be both the author and finisher of our salvation. We must deny ourselves and give ourselves wholly to Jesus Christ, that all the praise might belong to Him." Close quote. That's just one paragraph out of the preaching of, of John Calvin. He was so firmly committed to these solas that he bled them out of his heart as he stood before the congregation at St. Priest's Cathedral in Geneva and preached the Word of God. He was a gospel preacher because he was a Bible preacher. And then finally, he was committed to Solideo Gloria, for the glory of God alone. We heard about that earlier today. It's the overriding principle to everything. And Calvin was sold out to Soli Deo Gloria. John Calvin became the pastor at Geneva in 1536. In 1538, he was run out of town. He lasted only two years as the pastor of the church before he would return later. He fled to Strasbourg. The Roman Catholic Church saw this as their opportunity, that they would take Geneva back into the Catholic fold. The city fathers had no defense for the, for the Catholic leaders, and the only thing they knew was to appeal to their previous pastor whom they had run out of town on a road, on, on, a, road, uh, on a railroad. And they asked Calvin to address the Catholic Church on their behalf, and what John Calvin wrote, many historians argue, is the greatest defense of the Reformation that has ever been written. And Calvin's defense was to argue his point on soli deo gloria, that it is only a salvation that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, results in greatest glory to God alone. And so as John Calvin writes to, to Sandaletto, in this reply, Calvin writes, it is not very sound theology to confine, to confine a man's thoughts so much to himself and not to set before him as the prime motive of his existence to show forth the glory of God. 
we are born first of all for God and not for ourselves. As all things have flown from God and subsist in God, so all things must be related to God. And he goes on to write, we are God's. Let us therefore live for God and die for God. We are God's. Let His wisdom and will therefore rule all our actions. We are God's, meaning we belong to God. Let all the parts of our life accordingly strive together as our only lawful goal. Close quote. And Calvin argued that any other gospel than the one pure gospel of Jesus Christ adds man to the mix and puts man in the middle and has a gospel that says from man and through man and to man are all things, to man be the glory forever and ever. Amen. But Calvin held fast. And at the end of the three years that he was out of Geneva, the city fathers finally came to their senses and they issued a summons for Calvin to return to Geneva to be their pastor again. And Calvin said, I would rather die a thousand deaths than to go back to Geneva. They had, they had, they had run a stake through his heart and broken his soul. And it was Martin Bucer, his mentor, who said, you must go back. You must go back. And for Calvin, the only motive that would take him back to Geneva where he felt he had already died a thousand deaths, would be for him to die to himself and to live for the glory of God, and he would do this for God's honor and for God's fame. And it was at this time that John Calvin conceived his own personal logo. Martin Luther had his own logo, which is the Luther's rose with the, the, the solas on the different petals of the rose. This was John Calvin's logo, and it is so representative of his passion for the glory of God. His logo is an open hand, and in the hand is not a brain, but a heart. And the hand and the heart are being lifted up to God. And around the logo it reads, My heart I offer to you, Lord, promptly and sincerely. That was John Calvin. Offering his life up for the glory of God. Willing to go anywhere, do anything, pay any price with anyone if it would glorify God, if it would bring honor to God, Calvin would do it. And that is what he did. And he returned to Geneva, and there he was for the next 25 years, pastoring that church until he died in 1564. John Calvin built his ministry upon sola scriptura, as he preached virtually through the entire Bible, verse by verse. 
And as he preached the one true saving gospel surrounded by the hordes of hell in the Roman Catholic Church, he proclaimed the truth of grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone despite many threats upon his own life. And all this pointing upwards to the glory of God alone. Does the glory of God drive you? Does it motivate you? Would you be willing to go anywhere to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to any part of the earth? Would you be willing to pay any price in the face of opposition and difficulty if it meant the advancement of the glory of God? That's exactly where John Calvin was, and it is exactly where we must be tonight. For John Knox, without going through all these points of the solas, to boil down the effect in his life as he carried out his ministry, there was boldness in John Knox. He saw himself as a a watchman on the tower, a watchman on the wall, blowing the trumpet of the Word of God. And John Knox was 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 a daring preacher of the Word of God. When he returned back to Scotland after having been with John Knox and a part of translating the the Geneva Bible and returning to, to Scotland and to establish the Church of Scotland there in his day, in 1559 and 1560, John Knox was virtually a one-man assault team that was unleashed upon the spiritual darkness of, uh, of Scotland. And it was John Knox who stormed the gates of hell as he preached the Word of God, as muskets were being raised against him, as swords were drawn against him. John Knox had no reverse gear. His friends and supporters told him, do not go to St. Andrews, do not go to Perth. And John Knox went and he created a riot in the towns that he went to as he shook this world with the power of the Word of God. And when Mary, Queen of Scots, assumed the throne of Scotland, it was against the law to take mass in the entire nation of Scotland. And when she returned from France and her first Sunday in Scotland, she had a private mass at Holyrood Palace. John Knox got into the pulpit that next Sunday and called her out from the pulpit of of St. Giles Cathedral, the national cathedral in all of Scotland. And John Knox said before that massive crowd, one mass is more fearful to me than if 10,000 armed army enemies had landed in any part of this realm. One mass more dangerous than the marching armies of Europe to land upon the beaches of Scotland. And the English ambassador was there that day. And he recorded in a letter to the Secretary of State, William Cecil, I assure you the voice of one man, John Knox, is able in one hour to put more life in us than 500 trumpets blowing in our ears, close quote. That is the kind of powerful preaching that John Knox brought to the the nation of Scotland. And when Mary, Queen of Scots, 
heard what John Knox said. She had him summoned to come down the royal mile and to come down to Holyrood Palace. And the queen questioned Knox in front of all of her entourage. John Knox, just one man in front of the queen in her court. And John Knox said, God forbid that I should take upon me to command any to obey me, or yet to set subjects at liberty to do what pleases them. My travail is that both you as prince, queen, and we as subjects would all live to obey God. She had said to to Knox, you're going to make the whole nation follow you, and they won't follow me. And John Knox said, ma'am, I don't want anyone to follow me, and I don't want anyone to follow you. I want this nation to follow God and to follow Jesus Christ. It was a powerful confrontation. And after further discussion, Mary said that she would defend her church of Rome at all costs. And Knox boldly responded, Your will, madam, is no reason. Neither does your thought make that Roman harlot to be the true and immaculate spouse of Jesus Christ. Wonder not, madam, that I call Rome a harlot, for that church is altogether polluted with all kind of spiritual fornication, both in doctrine and in manners. Mary responded, you interpret the Scripture in one manner, and they in Rome interpret another way. Who shall I believe? And John Knox said, Madam, you shall believe God who plainly speaks in His Word. The Word of God is plain in itself. And if there appear any obscurity in one place, the Holy Ghost, who is never contrary to Himself, explains the same truth more clearly in another place. And Mary was becoming frustrated by the moment and expressed her wish that all of the learned men of of Catholic teaching could be present in this palace in order to challenge John Knox. And John Knox responded, Madam, would to God that the learned papists in Europe were present with you to sustain the argument, and you would patiently abide to hear the matter reason to the end? Then I doubt not, Madam that you would hear the vanity of the papist papist religion and how small ground it has within the Word of God, close quote. This is just one of five confrontations, the last of which Mary Queen of Scots was reduced to uh, to tears and howling, and John Knox said she was howling like a wounded animal in the palace. She was confronted with the power of the witness of John Knox. Sola Scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, solas Christos, soli Deo gloria. And it is no wonder that Mary Queen of Scots said, I am more afraid of John Knox's prayers than an army of 10,000 men. This is the ministry of John Knox and John Calvin. They were lit up by these solas. 
And they were ready to confront kings and queens and whoever was before them with the truth of the Word of God. And it would be from under Calvin's preaching that there would be raised up an army of Bible preachers who would go back into France and to take the gospel, and there were some 1,000 churches planted underground in France. As a result of the preaching of the gospel of John Calvin, and there were churches planted as far away as Brazil as a result of the preaching of John Knox. People would flee for their life out of Catholic France and Bloody Mary in England, and they would come to Geneva, and they would sit under the preaching of Calvin, and they would suddenly so burn in their soul, they would realize, we have to go back. We, we can't just sit here and take in this Bible teaching and not do something with this. And so, Calvin's school across the street, the Autotway, became known as Calvin's School of Death because once you enrolled in his seminary, it meant you were signing your death warrant because it was inevitable you would come under such a conviction by the power of the truth that you would realize your stewardship and accountability to God to be entrusted with this truth, and you would have to go back to the very land from which you had fled and come to Geneva to escape the persecution. How powerful was the effect of these solas upon these reformers. The last thing that I want to say is how the five solas strengthened their deaths. In the final days and in the final hours of their lives, these truths of the five solas gave Calvin and Knox supernatural strength. Concerning John Calvin, at the end of his life, in 1564, as he became so weak, but he knew he must continue to preach the Bible, that the elders of the church at St. Paris Cathedral would come for Calvin with a chair on rods and they would lift Calvin up out of his bed and put him in the chair and carry him through the streets of Geneva to the church and there lead him to the pulpit and there Calvin would preach until he had no more strength to climb up into the pulpit. And knowing the end had come, he wrote his last will and testament on April 25, 1564. And Calvin wrote, In the name of God, I, John Calvin, servant of the Word of God, in the church of Geneva, thank God that He has shown me not only mercy, but he has suffered me in all sins and weakness to use me as his servant. I confess to live and die in this faith, which he has given me, insomuch as I have no other hope or refuge than his predestination upon which my entire salvation is grounded. 
I embrace the grace which He has offered me in our Lord Jesus Christ, and I accept the merits of His suffering and dying, that through them all my sins are buried. And I humbly beg Him to wash me and cleanse me with the blood of our great Redeemer, so that I, when I shall appear before His face, shall bear His likeness. Moreover, I declare that I endeavored to preach His Word undefiled and to expound Holy Scripture faithfully according to the measure of grace which He has given to me. And one month later, at age 54, on May 27, 1564, John Calvin passed from this world to the next, committed to the preaching of the Word of God and the purity of the gospel to the end. And John Knox died the same way, remaining strong in the faith because of his commitment to these solas. And on Monday, November 24, 1572, lying weak in bed and unable to raise up and walk any longer, he asked his wife to read to him John 17, where I first cast my anchor. And John then asked her to read 1 Corinthians 15 on the resurrection. And then he had his wife read to him from Calvin's sermons on Ephesians. And he sighed deeply and said, Now it has come, Lord Jesus, into your hand I commend my spirit. In the silence that followed, he was asked to give some sign that he was dying in the promises of the gospel. And Knox lifted a hand heavenward and breathed his last. He was buried just outside of St. Giles. And there, one man standing there, the Earl of Morton said, there lies one in whom... This man never feared the face of another man. He was bold and courageous because of these truths. These are the doctrine-driven lives of John Calvin and John Knox. They were not culture-driven. They were not consensus-driven. They were not pressure-driven. They were not survey-driven. They were not crowd-driven. These two reformers were doctrine-driven, scripture-driven, gospel-driven, God-driven. They were converted by the solas, they preached the solas, and they persevered unto death by the solas. So I want to ask you, what is driving your life? What is empowering you? What is energizing you? What is compelling you to live? And it must be our commitment to sola scriptura and the teaching and the truth thereof, and most specifically our passionate desire that this gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, would go to the ends of the earth and that we would make whatever sacrifice is necessary to impact this world for Jesus Christ. May God stir your soul 
And may God build your faith to be like John Knox and John Calvin. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, how we thank you that you've given a cloud of witnesses around us, the examples of those who have gone before us, going all the way back to the beginning with Abel and Enoch and Noah, but continuing even through the centuries of church history. And we thank you for the bold, courageous commitment to these five solas that these reformers had. May you raise up from this school, may you raise up from those of us who are gathered here tonight, those who will proclaim these great truths, who will live these truths, and when they come to the end of their life, that these truths will be the anchor for their soul. Father, do this in Jesus' name.